Is woe is me a life strategy? And if so, does saying my life is amazing the opposite of it? It's all coming up next on this edition of the Gratitude Journal Podcast. This is the Gratitude Journal Podcast. Basking in the wonder that is fall here in Northeast Ohio. Hello, my friends. Matthew here. Welcome back to another episode of the Gratitude Journal Podcast, where we basically try to find small ways, sometimes big ways. Sometimes they can be rather huge. But more often than not, the small, sometimes undetectable ways to maybe find a little additional gratitude in our life so that our lives will, uh, will feel a little more satisfactory. Welcome back. It is a beautiful day here in Northeast Ohio, and I really almost feel to a certain extent that the shoe is going to is going to drop. Even though we do not have full autumn color yet, uh, there are uh, many, many signs that autumn is here and that uh, we are basking in it. As I said earlier, we have a beautiful row of burning bushes that sit across the street in front of this incredibly ugly monolith of an apartment building. And every year they explode in color and they're about halfway there. So I oftentimes use it as a barometer for measuring kind of where we are in the scope of things as far as autumn hits. And uh, that's kind of where we're at right now. There's blue sky. There's loads of sunshine. There's um, actually a forecast of some additional sunshine through the weekend. I'm recording this on Friday, the ninth day of October. And uh, we're vacillating back and forth, my bride and I. You know, we've been flirting with this yard sale thing, and I hate yard sales. I hate getting ready for a yard sale. I hate putting little stickers on things in a yard sale. I hate dickering with people in a yard sale. And I hate all of the whole process, even more right in the teeth of a pandemic. So we've been gathering things, but I say that we've been gathering things for the past year. And it wasn't really 10 minutes ago that uh, Donna was upstairs cleaning the refrigerator, which is always a chore. And I'm very uh, grateful for that. Because, man, oh, man, did it need it. And I said, listen, I want to show you this table that I set up down here to replace uh, the space that once housed our pool table, which is now in somebody's basement in Michigan. Um, I'm putting stuff on this table to set up for the yard sale, and I was thinking about having it tomorrow. And she looked at me, as most people look at me whenever I utter things, with that kind of vacant look in her eyes. And, and I knew right then that, one, she didn't really want to have a yard sale. Two, she didn't really want to go through all the stuff that has to make up a yard sale. And three, she was right in the middle of putting, you know, the vegetable tray back in the refrigerator and really didn't want to have anything to do with it. And so I still really don't know that we're going to have a yard sale, but I'm guessing since we're in the heart of the afternoon and I have no signs on telephone poles in the neighborhood, I haven't put a post out on the Nextdoor app, I haven't really done anything to, you know, specifically prepare 
for a yard sale? My guess is that we're not going to have a yard sale. So the backup plan for the weekend, aside from going down and dropping some stuff off for the parents, is to maybe do to the back deck what we did to the front porch a couple of weeks ago. And it looks great. And that is to kind of repaint it before the winter hits. And so we have another little plan up our sleeve. Maybe we, we've thought maybe briefly of a relocation, but that's really on the back burner. I'm not even going to address it. But, you know, doing these things does call to mind getting one's house, quote unquote, ready. And even if we don't get it ready for anything aside from our own enjoyment, that will work just fine, too. While watching the vice presidential debate earlier in the week, it reminded me of watching the first presidential debate. And one of the things that I mentioned to my bride during the debate this past week that I also mentioned a couple of weeks ago was, does the current occupant in the Oval Office have any sense of empathy? And we don't need to answer that question. Obviously, I don't make this particular podcast a political podcast. The people closest to me sort of know how we feel about things. But, you know, I want to give credit where credit is due. And, of course, I want to call on the carpet the times when people or issues need to be called on the carpet. But that's not for today. I, I bring that up because I really think that you know, this whole concept of empathy is very critical. And I ask that question because it makes me wonder, not just for the current occupant of the Oval Office, but all of us, really. I mean, is there room for empathy during a pandemic? Now, that may seem like a rhetorical question because, really, most of us have never been through a pandemic. And so we don't really have a barometer for measuring. But it does make me ask the question, because I do wonder in our quest to hunker down and understand all of the ramifications about our actions so that we continue to keep ourselves safe in the midst of a pandemic, does this rob us of our empathy? I say that because I do think that we have a tendency to turn inward and look at ourselves. Now, I can't speak for anybody else, but I can say that this is and has been an issue for me. And so what I've been trying to do during my day is I've been trying to figure out different ways that I can maybe put myself in the place of somebody else. And that's tough to do anyway, but it's even tougher to do, I think, when you are faced with a pandemic. Because naturally, the tendency is to go into protective mode. 
And if you'll pardon the beep in the background, I'm not sure if it's coming through on the microphone, but I mentioned my bride is upstairs giving our refrigerator the once-over, and I'm sure she has all the doors open, and you know that beep is reminding you that the doors are all open, so uh, I hope it's not too irritating. But anyway, back to the subject at hand. I, I just, you know, I, I've been really rolling this concept around in my brain really over the past couple of weeks because, you know, uh, Mally has been heavy on my mind, and for those who are new to the podcast, you know, Mally is our granddaughter, and it's been two months now since uh, she passed away. And, you know, I'm trying to get a handle on where my feelings are in regards to Mally's death. And um, in turn, that makes me want to figure out where my feelings of empathy are you know, for her dad and, you know, her, her stepmom and her sister and, you know, the step kids and, you know, how, uh, they are dealing and, and, and progressing in their, you know, their, their, the journey of, of mourning the death of someone so close to you. And I realize that it's very, very tough to do. And at the onset, it seems rather intrusive. Like, I want to call them up. And I want to reach out to them. And I want to send texts. And I feel like even amidst a pandemic, the concept of trying to be empathetic and loving... Uh, still exists, and I and I and I, I do think that in answering my own question, is there room for empathy during a pandemic? You know, yes, absolutely, and and I'm not patting myself on the back by saying that, and I'm and then and also I'm, and I'm also not saying, you know, you need to be empathetic, you know, even though it's middle of a pandemic. I, I'm just I'm asking the question because it does seem like you know, pandemics and <laughs> invite us to turn inward and, you know, look at ourselves and be only caring about our own situation. And I'm trying not to be, I should say, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be careful not to be that person completely because I feel it enough anyway. But I do wonder what that empathy is supposed to mean. Does that empathy in the long run, does it help? Because I know when I've had people close to me pass away, I think the normal progression is to kind of want to be left alone. And, you know, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, I, I appreciate it, but I really don't want that right now. I really don't need that right now. I don't really care to explain to you what it is I'm feeling. And, you know, this just makes things easier if you just don't call or you just don't text. And I think in trying to satisfy those requirements, it may make it seem like we don't care. And it's hard to ride that balance. So I do think that... Finding these little spaces of, of being uh, empathetic, especially during this time that we live in, this 
almost unbelievable time, I think is pretty critical. I face a similar situation with my Aunt Mary, and it involves my cousin Champ's death. And, and Champ passed away earlier in 2020, so it's been more than several months. But we just went back to West Virginia a couple of weeks ago for his I guess essentially his funeral. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily call it a life celebration in the same way that we celebrated Mally's life, but it was a chance for some of us to get together and to mark the passing of Champ when we weren't able to do that in the midst of this pandemic. And the person probably hit the most hard by Champ's uh, death is my Aunt Mary. That's my father's sister and his only um, his only living sibling right now out of out of all of them. And it was very, very tough because we knew we were going in to West Virginia for this event, and we tried to reach out to her. And normally she can be some she, she's very uh, she's very cool and she's very eccentric. Uh, but she's also sometimes tough to get a hold of. And, and you know, Donna's been really trying to reach out to her and to say, you know, to see how she is, but also to say, listen, we're going to come in and, you know, we, you know, we, we know we're not going to stop by because my Aunt Mary's been very, you know, she falls, you know, right bullseye in the dead center of, you know, people who are most at risk. And she was very upfront with Don and saying, listen, if you come by, you ever, ever come by back here to visit during this pandemic, I'm not coming out of the house and you're not coming in. I mean, she was, <laughs> she was very adamant about it. So when we packed our car up after a week of not being able to get a hold of her, I took chairs and so did my sisters. We all rode together and we took chairs and I said, listen, let's take some lawn chairs because if we stop by Aunt Mary's house, at least we can set them up in the driveway with our masks on and, you know, we can have a visit, at least for a short amount of time if she's up for it. Well, she never got back with us. And on the day of the funeral, I guess that's what I'll call it, the day of the funeral, uh, she was nowhere to be found. She, again, wouldn't answer any of our uh, conversations or any of our phone calls. So with me, I had a binder of pictures of, of Champ, and Champ had given me this binder of pictures because when he was still alive, we had discussed doing this small documentary film about him, which is still in the works. And one of the reasons for going back, in addition to Champ's funeral, was for me to get some extra film footage of the area so that I could use it in this film that I was putting together for Champ. Now, what I had with me was this binder, and I had taken all these pictures, and I had scanned them for use in the film, and my goal was to give the binder to my Aunt Mary, and I was thinking, well, she would probably like this. So I guess I was trying to exhibit uh, some empathy 
even though both of us were feeling the hurt of Champ's death, but my Aunt Mary much more because she was so close to him and saw him every day and so, sort of catered to him, you know, during his time, you know, living at the assisted living facility. And my Aunt Mary's apartment was right behind the assisted living facility. So they were very close, and there was just a lot of death this year with Champ's parents, both of them. And, and my Aunt Mary has been through a lot in terms of, of death and mourning. And so I had this binder. And so we said to ourselves while we were there, okay, here's the deal. Why don't we just drive into her driveway? Uh, we'll take the binder, lean it against the door, knock on the door. If she comes to the door, great. If she doesn't come to the door, at least when she opens the door, she can have this binder and we'll try to make contact later. So that's exactly what we did. And so we put the binder against the door. We knocked on the door. We ran back to the car. And as we were getting back into the car, seemingly that she wasn't going to come to the door, she came to the door. And so we were like, Aunt Mary, you know, and she just kind of looked at us and said, what are you doing? And we said, well, we uh, went to the, we went to Champ's funeral. I know I'm not going to go. I wasn't going to go. I said, oh, okay. Well, um, and Donna said, well, um, you know, Matt videotaped, you know, Father Grossi's, um homily and, you know, thought you might want to see it. I don't want to see it. I don't want to see anything about it. And so, wow. I mean, like the blood was sort of like draining out of my body. And um, so, my sister said, well, we left a binder of some pictures. I don't want a binder of pictures. Take it. I don't want it. I don't want to see it. I have enough pictures of him. I don't want to see any more. And so she finally decided to take the binder, but that quote-unquote visit lasted about five minutes. And so we backed out of the driveway, and she kind of watched us, and then she closed the door, and then we left. And so then we went downtown, and we sat around having a beverage. It was a beautiful day, and we were all kind of just sort of awestruck by what had just occurred. And I admit that I was a little hurt, I suppose. And later on, though, I thought to myself, you know, along this whole subject of empathy was I not being good about this was I not reflecting enough on her situation the same as when we try to reach out to Mally's family and we don't get immediate responses we say to ourselves Everybody deals with this in their own way, and this is their way of dealing with it. And uh, the space has to be given, and you know, you know, empathy has to be demonstrated. And in the same way, I, I guess, kind of consoled myself by the fact that I don't know where she is in her morning journey. The same as she doesn't know where I am in my morning journey. And so I think the concept of empathy is critical. It's relatively easy to understand 
being affected by the death of people whom you know. But what about people whom you don't know, but you know of? And I'm referring to Eddie Van Halen. I mean, not only was the world of rock stunned this week by the death of Eddie Van Halen, but I really think that anybody who has ever picked up an instrument, anybody who has a mild passing affection for rock music, not only has just heard the name Eddie Van Halen, but would be remarkably affected by his death simply because of his impact on the instrument alone. I mean, how many young guitarists this week spent even more time in the attic and more time in the basement practicing eruption because of Eddie Van Halen and that almost constant happy grin on his face while he was playing. Is it possible to be affected by someone's death even though you really never knew them? And I wholeheartedly say yes. And I think at some level, at some level, it might even be more difficult because you don't have any barometer to measure where that affection should be. I mean, we know if we have a friend pass away, a child, a parent, we know kind of like where our grief level is expected to be. But when you're dealing with, you know, an actor or an artist, or a musician, or a writer, or somebody who you maybe even just saw behind the cash register for years and years, and all of a sudden, Joe isn't there anymore. And you say, what happened to Joe? Well, Joe passed away. So yeah, he had a heart attack. And then you think, wow, I mean, I I, kind of like didn't really know him, but I kind of knew him. And that's kind of the way I feel about Eddie Van Halen. So in a a strange, weird, sort of minuscule way, it it might even be a little tougher because you're kind of like left out in the cold like you really don't know how to feel about it. So I think it's almost like this year, the woe is me quotient is really high because we're dealing with so much death and so much misery, and so much uncertainty, and our family members are passing away, our rock star idols are passing away, our favorite authors are passing away, people who we've seen on screen are passing away. It's like these little pieces of our world, and in many cases, big, big, big pieces, are going on and leaving us behind and we're stuck with the grieving process and so what is there to be grateful about that so that is a tough one 
And in my quest to try to continue to educate myself, (laughs) aside from watching reruns of Better Call Saul, which is what we're doing again (laughs) this week, I've been trying to regularly put in some reading time. And I went a large gap this year and last year with really not doing too much reading. And I kind of like kick myself because like my friend Ron reads all the time. And, you know, um, other people who I follow on Twitter, they're always saying, um, hey, I just finished this great book or I just finished this great novel. Or if you want to see a comparison between this book and that, I'm thinking, wow, I don't do hardly any reading aside from the newspaper. I mean, I really need to spend more time. So that was one of my New Year's resolutions. And I'm not a New Year's resolution kind of guy, but that was one of my New Year's resolutions. And one of the uh, persons that I've been reading uh, lately is uh, Pema Chodron. And, And I'm not sure I'm pronouncing the name correctly. And I even went to a couple of interview sites to to see if I could find an interview where they sort of introduce her so that I knew the correct pronunciation of her name. But but Pema is a a Tibetan Buddhist nun, and she's at, uh, I believe, at an abbey in Canada. And I hope I have that correct. But, you know, she just, you know, she writes a lot on spirituality and, you know, Tibetan, you know, Buddhist meditation and other um, you know, other topics of, of, of a spiritual nature. And I, I was really impressed with uh, this latest uh, book that I read from her, uh, When Things Fall Apart. And she talked a lot about death. And I wanted to include just this little segment because the woe is me factor has been admittedly pretty high for me lately. And I wanted to read this. This is from Pema Chodron. She says, death and hopelessness provide proper motivation, proper motivation for living an insightful, compassionate life. But most of the time, warding off death is our biggest motivation right? We habitually ward off any sense of problem. We're always trying to deny that it's a natural occurrence, that things change, that the sand is slipping through our fingers. Time is passing. It's as natural as the seasons changing and day turning into night, but getting old, getting sick, losing what we love. We don't see those events as natural occurrences. We want to ward off that sense of death no matter what. Relaxing with the present moment, relaxing with hopelessness, relaxing with death, not resisting the fact that things end, that things pass, that things have no lasting substance, that everything is changing all the time. That is the basic message. I mean, that passage ripped my heart out. I didn't know how to deal with that passage. It was almost like it was too much for me to handle. I read it again, and then I read it again, and then I read it again. And then I realized how correct she is. 
that we spend a lot of time trying to ward off something that is eventually going to happen. It's not that we shouldn't protect ourselves. It's not that we shouldn't live a healthy life so that we can live longer. It's not that we should put ourselves necessarily in catastrophic positions, although the thought of today riding a motorcycle on a two-lane highway with headphones in my ear playing smooth jazz was really, really, really appealing today. And even though that was, it can be a very, very dangerous situation. But I do agree with her that this is what we have a tendency to do. And this sense of angst that I have in not, uh, boy, that's tough to say, being at a relaxing place with this, when you watch this, this, this 20-year-old girl fight for five years and succumb to, you know, to succumb to uh, cancer the way she did, that's hard to relax to. It's hard to watch this cousin of mine over the past 20-some years deal with this life that he has been dealt and then to have to to be at an end the way he was at an end, that's tough to relax to. That's very, very tough. But whether it's tough or not doesn't change the fact. And that is tough too. So can you live in the middle? Can you live in the middle of that? Because if someone is just existing with woe is me, and then the opposite side of the continuum is life's great, man. I'm having a great life. Dude, high five. I mean, if that's the opposite, and both of those seem to be less than authentic then where does this middle place lie? Where do we find the gratitude in all of this turmoil? Where, does, where is it? And I think empathy is the key. I think it's something to strive for. I think it's something for me to get better at. Whether the recipient wants it or not, I think that it's necessary. And I think finding this place in the middle where you're forwarding the quick text, whether it gets a response or not, it doesn't matter. Saying, hey, just just thinking about you, just hope you're doing okay. And knowing that it comes from, you know, a heartfelt place. And it's not just a checklist, not just a check mark on a list. You know, the casual email that just says, I didn't want anything in particular. I just wanted to see how you were doing. It's been a couple of months since I heard from you. And I know you were going through a tough time. If you ever want to rap, you know, let me know. And as I mentioned a couple of episodes ago, that, you know, just a, a, a card, you know, in the mail, just saying to someone, hey, just didn't want anything. No, it's not your birthday. I just wanted to say hey and and hope things are groovy and, you know, rock on. 
in the spirit of Eddie Van Halen. I mean, I think that middle place is where I think we need to strive to be. It's it's kind of where I need to strive to be. And it's... If Pema Chodron was sitting in front of me, I would say what you just said is very, very, very tough. It's, it has been very, very tough to do. But I've always been in admiration of those who can find that. I remember when we moved to Tennessee and I was confronted during my first time living in the Mid-South, I was confronted with you know, various ways of expressing oneself that just don't normally occur in the North, which makes living in the South so interesting. And one of the phrases that I've used myself because I felt like it came from an empathetic place, an empathetic space in Tennesseans' hearts when they would say it to me, is when I would express something that happened that wasn't very great and that was sort of disconcerting. And they would say, I hate that for you. I hate that for you. And I just felt that to be genuine and I felt that (laughs) very interesting expression of empathy I felt that to be real and sometimes just saying that might be enough to further the ball along we might say dude that sucks but I like I hate that for you even better So that middle empathetic road, I think, is the place where I need to be. For a while there, I thought maybe I was getting kind of like a little bit of a cough, but I think I kind of turned the corner, and it's a good thing because, see, that was kind of last week, And I stopped by my parents very, very briefly with a mask, double mask, went in, dropped some stuff off, made sure my dad had his favorite beer, said hello, and left. I mean, I wasn't in there for more than five minutes. And so I started to feel bad. And I thought, no, I think think I'm okay. I think I'm okay. Uh, You know, just trying to do what I need to do and, you know, follow up. And, but I feel like... um, that I'm okay. And so I gave blood last night. And as an O negative, you know, the Red Cross pounds on my door about every seven weeks going, come on, you better get down here, make your appointment. And so I spiked my iron levels. And I even started to make a film about it. I wanted to tell people and show people how easy it is to give blood. And when I showed up with my camera after after I had done a lot of pre-production stuff, they told me that I was not able to film inside the Red Cross. And so I thought, oh, great. Okay, so you're just going to turn away free advertising. That's okay. No problem. Uh, But uh, I feel good. 
I feel fine. I hope you do too. I hope my blood is okay. I hope when they test it, they don't come back and say, you know what, uh, you have COVID. Uh, I hope that's not the case. And I'm hoping all positive things for you as well. So thank you for uh, downloading and tuning in to another episode of the Gratitude Journal Podcast. <laughs>